Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Blockhead. Here we are in the closet upstairs. Myself and Betsy Jean, roly-poly, my wonderful little fat cat uh, who lives upstairs here. Uh, She's one of those shy cats who likes to, you know, stay away from the other cats downstairs. So we try to make a point of coming to visit with her. Whenever she comes downstairs, it's very special uh, because, you know, she, she prefers to be alone. She's one of those cats. Anyway, here she is with me in the closet again to keep me company. Now she's rubbing up against my leg, letting me know she wants my, my attention. So I'm, uh, if I seem distracted, it's because I'm rubbing her back. Anyway, I'm so happy to have her here. <laughs> I love this cat. And she's very loving, although she likes to be alone most of the time. Uh, when you do visit her, she's very, very loving, and very, very affectionate. But then she's also one of those cats who just says, hey, okay, enough is enough. (laughs) I'm off on my own now. I want to meditate, think about the world and uh, my place in it. So here we are. Uh, It's the end of April. Spring is in full bloom. The daffodils are out. Probably where you are, it's a little farther along than where I am here in upstate New York. But uh, color is starting to spring out all over the place, and that always makes me happy. Uh, It's a great time of year if the rains hold back a little bit and uh, that's always a problem too in spring but here we are we're warming up on the pitcher's mound right that's what charlie brown's doing whenever i think about that he you know think about how hopeful charlie brown was before he went out to the pitcher's mound every spring over 50 years charlie brown gets out on that pitcher's mound sometime in march or february and he stands there remembering the year before and i don't know why (laughs) why he doesn't you know just oh lord you know when he starts thinking about the years before he initially starts off with these memories that are are really uh nostalgic and affectionate and then when he gets down to the specifics and he remembers that he lost 148 games he wants to die his stomach hurts right um uh, he always does that to himself. Hopefully, you'll win more games than Charlie Brown this summer. Every year, you hope Charlie Brown's going to win a game, and yet that never happens. But uh, he doesn't give up. So we won't give up either. We'll continue to move forward, whatever befalls us. Today, we have the second part of our interview with Steve Conley. Not only is he a great cartoonist, but he's a really great conversationalist and a really insightful person. He's, he's got a, lots to say on a whole range of topics regarding cartooning. I'm sure other things, too, if, if we'd had a chance to go there. And I hope we get them. Well, we will. We're going to find a way to get a chance to talk together again sometime in the near future because uh, we just got... It was great. It's one of... You know, you have those conversations with people and you just click. When you click, it, it goes on and on and, and you could talk for a day and uh, not realize how much time has gone by and that's the, the lost art of conversation right it's like when you're in the middle of a great conversation that time just melts away and and i have to say you know these conversations uh the last few conversations i've had with with uh, brad perry or with steve conley or will henry the time has just gone by so quickly every time we sit down to talk it's been wonderful and with steve no less two hour long conversation so there you have it <laughs> I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as Steve and I did talking to one another. I hope again, like I said, Steve and I have got to find a way to do it again sometime because it was great and there's so much more territory to cover. So without further ado, I've babbled on long enough. Let's get into it. Steve Conley, part two, starts off with me uh, talking to Steve about his background in graphic design and uh, leads into one of the most insightful statements about making comics Uh, and being a cartoonist that comes to memory. So here we go. Steve Conley, part two. Enjoy, and I'll meet up with you at the end. 
I'm thinking about your style again, and I'm thinking about, uh, uh, you know, you incorporate not only this uh, extensive knowledge of, uh, of graphics, uh, graphic design, uh, which, you know, is indicated in the way the strip is laid out and the way you use lettering and typeface, uh, which all has to come from that familiarity with the world of advertising and graphic design and your experience in the newspapers. And, uh, but then you've also got this deep understanding of of photoshop uh which is brilliantly displayed in the middle aged and all of the wonderful you know it's it it's organic it's natural it never reads as photoshoppy in 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 its way it it, it just comes across as brilliantly done um the way you color uh, your strip, uh, middle aged. It's, it's terrific. I'm in such admiration of it, although I do something completely different, but it's, it's just terrific. And you've got this great handle on the figure and, and composition. It's all come together brilliantly in the middle age. At the same time, we talk about somebody like Charles Schultz working in this really minimalist approach to cartooning what is it you take away from something like like a cartoonist working so you know dramatically different from what you're doing uh, well it's it's a case of i think authenticity i think mm-hmm. there is a um this get, got to go into a rant but we are so in nowadays we're so sold at by everybody everyone's pitching us something you know the best network on the best plan with the best phones and the best country on earth, you know, that sort of rambling constant barrage of sales at us. And there's also uh, more and more the, the idea of a, a message from a single creator to a reader, I think speaks more uh, directly, just speaks more directly. It feels more honest. It feels less like a, a sales pitch mm-hmm. and a lot of comics, um, comic books, uh, got more polished and as things get more polished they feel more corporate and I think mm-hmm. his simple line and his straightforward lettering and the idea that the lettering and the panel borders and the figures and the layouts all work together as an integrated whole the way Will Eisner's does the way uh, Harvey Kurtzman's did um, they, uh, Richard Thompson's this the idea that they're these perfect they they they're very authentic, and you can tell because there's not a piece of it that feels like it's uh, disingenuous. Oh, I, I love that, man. I, I love. I just love what you just said. And I feel like that's what I try to do with what I'm doing. I mean, my fonts, my lettering's a font. Those guys, those greats, did not use fonts. So right. I mean, even they, there's something to be said for that. Comic book fonts still look hand lettered, even though they're all on a computer. Mm. Is a acknowledgement that the work of a human hand is a cornerstone to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to do with what I'm doing is I try to make sure that I don't use elliptical tools for my word balloons. I use my hand. I draw each word balloon. It bothers me if they look too perfect. If I start doing a perfect circle, I'm like, oh, calm down. <laughs> you know, it shouldn't feel, it should feel, we talk about a deadline versus a live line. And a deadline is one that has no variation, has no look like a human hand was part of it. And I think those deadlines are our enemy. <laughs> and, we, and, we, and the deadlines are our enemy. I, yeah, I, right, I, exactly. I mean, on multiple levels. But those those, those lifeless lines um, are impersonal and robotic and cold. And his lines were warm and lively. And you could, t- you know, there might be a program that attempts to emulate what he did but it's still just an imitation all my coloring is done uh, on an ipad now all actually the entire comic strip except for the lettering is done on an ipad with uh, procreate mm-hmm. so the colors are all painted in layer mm-hmm. upon layer like glazes mm-hmm. uh and the idea being that i feel what i love it like you know if you're familiar with the wallace and gromit cartoons of uh oh, sure. that those fingerprints you see on the clay yes that's what I want in my work. Yes. I want those fingerprints. And um, so at this point, you could just see this is really not, I'm not intuiting it. I feel like the sense that he just sat down at the page and there wasn't this, you know, and now I shall begin to be a completely natural human. You know, whereas <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm opening up the iPad and all of this stuff is conscious that I'm saying, oh, you know, I really want this feeling and I want, oh, I'm just, 
I don't know if this is meditation or what I'm trying to do, but I'm trying to strip away all the uh, all the pent up everything and just try to get to something raw on the on the page and make myself laugh. And so the the hope is that you know, and, and the inspirations there are not only just Charles Schultz but Walt Kelly, the way he had typography and word balloons and panel borders and characters all feel like they were like he didn't again this might be rambling but I, I get the sense that when walt kelly and will eisner started lettering that they didn't have to enter a different mindset mm-hmm. like there was no difference between him drawing a foot and writing the word foot that was the same part of his brain it was a very organic thing and the two things if you saw the word foot and saw a picture of a foot next to each other you'd feel like yeah those are the same um like the barriers between those things don't exist um words and pictures are really it really is this words and pictures is still the idea of two separate things pushed together whereas comics it's they're just this mesh and i feel like when we get to that point that it's greater than the sum of its parts and i look at that stuff and like again charles schultz walt kelly will eisner i feel like the best i can do when I'm at my best, that's when the thing feels that integrated. Man, that was, that, I have to tell you that what, what you've just said is among my favorite quotes ever uh, about comics and about, uh, um, you know, what what makes certain comics sing and what we look for and in comics. I mean, uh, uh, that idea is so it's, it's so true. And, um, you know, the, the idea that there's a voice, that there's an authentic voice and that voice is not only in the, the, the drawings and what is said, but how it's said and how it's visualized and the visualization is how it's said. You know, it's, it's separate from like it's writing a script is one thing and drawing pictures, illustrating is another, but we don't do that. We don't write script and, uh, and illustrate the script. We make comics and comics are exactly that. This, this melding of these material and these, this visualization of ideas, both verbally and in, and in form and what you're looking for there what you take from Schultz and from Eisner and from Jack Kirby and all of those great cartoonists and Walt Kelly. Oh my gosh. Right. Walt Kelly's a perfect, you know, uh, touchstone for you. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, in particular, in his love of font, his love of type, uh, his use of type is giving voice, visual voice, you know, to a character, which I, I love. I love that idea. It's one of the things I, uh, you know, you look at a comic strip like uh, Peanuts and Peanuts, Charles Schultz's lettering. Can you imagine anybody else's lettering on that? No. And it's, no, no. And and it's one of the things that distinguishes between a strip like Schultz's or Walt Kelly's and a lot of what you're talking about in regard to corporate comics, which are produced by highly skilled, you know, let, I mean, I tip my hat again, highly skilled uh, craftspeople who are working in all kinds of different areas, they come together to make these corporate comics and, and they can be great, right? But they, they're they lacking what you're talking about in terms of the stamp of authenticity of one person communicating to another person. Uh, and that's what we, you're right, you know, that's what we get from those great cartoonists is particularly somebody like Schultz or Robert Crumb or, or uh, Walt Kelly or Jules Pfeiffer, you know, we, we get an individual who is speaking to us intimately and, uh, and directly. And, uh, and it's a connection. Because it's, not a, because it's not born in a boardroom or not born in a committee meeting or it's not weakened with every step of the process. Um, right. There's not somebody there saying, you know, that's going to, fe- going to offend this person or that person. There's nobody saying, well, you know, we can't do that or you can't do that because we'll lose this. We'll lose sales. We'll lose whatever. It's just the stamp of, of a person, you know, I, and you're, you're, and you're actually suggesting rules that make sense. Like, <laughs> you know, like there are so many rules which don't make sense. I've written for DC comics and, uh, I've been, been, sending them some scripts and like the idea that some arbitrary rules that would come down the line that say you can't have this situation like you can't have a situation like this and wow it's for all i know it was a you know um something they had done too many times before or just a pet peeve of the editor uh, but there's just i don't know it, it it 
arbitrary rules that seem, yeah, you know, Superman can't do this or that. On the other hand, then they'll take Superman and, and or Captain America or somebody and totally trash the underpinning that people have, you know, uh, bought into for years and, and really count on when they care about a character. And yet, you know, then there's these other rules that are very, seem to come from nowhere. Yeah, and I don't, I don't ever sense Charles Schultz or, or Bill Waterson ever just doing a stunt. No. Kind of, no. Although tomorrow is April 1st, and I was so close to having tomorrow's strip just be one where I just said that our hero is dead in the Middle Age, and I was like very close to having a grave scene. But I, well, I'm very glad I did, because, again, that's something that's a relationship I have with the reader, and I don't really don't want to start portraying that. Um, well, I think that was something that, you know, and I, I think we talked about this a little bit with Will Henry, too. I think that was something that Charles Schultz was very aware of. And uh, and I think all of the cartoonists, Walt Kelly or, or uh, you know, any of the other cartoonists you're talking about, I think they're aware of that. They have a, a relationship with the reader. And those readers care about your characters and they care. I think one of the things I remember about is, is Charles Schultz talking to Lynn Johnston, uh, for better or for worse. Right. And she, he was talking to her in discussion about the, um, the death of, uh, I can't remember the dog's name. Uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed, but you know, the well, dog, sure. Sad, you know, heartbreaking, right? Because especially since we, we love our pets and I love Waddlebottom, by the way, uh, <laughs> You, you know, we don't see enough Waddlebottom, but anyway, in your, in your strip, but still, uh, I keep waiting for Waddlebottom to turn up. I love, I love the character, but okay. Aside from a fan. <laughs> um, so, you know, Schultz is talking to her and saying, well, you can't, you can't kill her off. Can't kill him off. Um, the name is on the tip of my tongue too. Gosh, darn it. And, uh, you can't kill him off because so many people, your readers, you know, your readers are, are it's like a, a betrayal of your readers who, who count on that character. And, but she went, she had to, you know, this is, this was what she had to do. You know, this was what her inner self or inner artist was telling her that she had to do for her strip and she did and she went ahead and the, the dog passed away in that very oh god i'm gonna cry <laughs> very sad heroic way uh-huh. and schultz was upset with her I, I think she said somewhere that he didn't talk to her for like two weeks afterwards or something he was very upset with her um because she she did that and uh he felt like it was a betrayal of the reader well you know we all define that in different ways but i but what he was saying about readership and and not taking that for granted is really important right i but i I admire so admire what she did because a lot of i think what a lot of the problem with a lot of corporate media right now is giving readers readers or viewers exactly what they want yeah or you know and and somehow or giving them something different and violating the spirit of the thing and i think what she did she stayed true to the spirit of her thing of her strip Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm them you know something else yeah i i agree you know i think that in that case you're talking about a case where she's absolutely she stayed true to what she was doing and i think that's one of the nice things about the best uh of you know uh syndicated strips or comic strips or web comics is you know when you sense that creator is authentic and they have a vision that they're staying true to come hell or high water right you know and uh and she was doing it schultz did it you're doing it i mean uh, walt kelly certainly did it uh and robert crumb obviously you know uh, sticking to your guns you know it's one of the things about the twitterverse that kind of as an old man <laughs> kind of bums me out a little bit is that there's this tendency to throw stones you know to jump on top of somebody at any given moment for offending someone this way or that way and you know i mean first of all nobody's perfect and everybody's going to say something offensive at one point or another whether they mean to or not somebody's going to be upset by what you said even if you said it out of the most innocent of places so that's one thing so there's got to be an amount a certain amount of human forgiveness but um you know at the same time uh one of those things is 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 that gosh you know in order to be creative you have to be able to voice your opinion and voice yourself and if you're afraid of of saying something because you know uh 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 people are going to jump all over you on Twitter or someplace. Um, ultimately, you're, you're going to circumscribe what you say. And um, and what everybody's going to say is ultimately going to be sort of this middle of the road, acceptable pablum, you know. Uh, and and that 
is unfortunate. Not that, you know, certain speech shouldn't be condemned, absolutely. But at the same time, I think there's a tendency to go overboard and to jump on all over on, on top of some somebody well, who I, may be just innocent. And I think that this is right now, we're such, we're, it's at such a uh, thorny uh, spot in history for this mm-hmm. sort of thing. Every Politically, it's a mess. Yeah. Uh, everybody's on tenderhooks and... Yeah. And social media is seems to be having less and less of a value as an outreach tool. I mean, it's, very, it's still very possible that Neil Gaiman re, re, retweets a link to my comic strip, and you know, it, it makes the next six life six months of my life infinitely better. Yeah. So it still has this kind of lottery ticket quality to it. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the downside of it um, is so great. Yeah. But 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 right now it seems to be working less and less as an outreach tool. And I think we're better off having mailing lists and reaching mm-hmm. our readers directly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if people don't like what you do, I mean, you know, this goes beyond that. This is a, if someone actually has real political issues with what you what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I really don't know where to go with that. It's, it's uh, I, mean, I would just say get off Twitter. I mean, if yeah. things yeah. where, you know, it's just the big problem is when people read those comments or, you know, if you're doing something that you think might be challenging mm-hmm. i mean you actually had some uh jetpack jr you had uh some strips with the uh, uh, baby trump in there yeah oh uh, yeah absolutely probably caused a ton of flack uh you know what i think anybody who was reading that left reading that strip now is knows where i come from politically and so uh i i think i wasn't getting any flack you know at the end really for for that yeah i i think after the election i i pretty much came out and said this is where i stand you know on this issue uh and so the strip is going to go in this direction for a little while and you know so i did because as a cartoonist, it goes back to what you were saying before. My conscience said, look, you know, I got, I've got nothing to lose. You know, I don't have a big readership to begin with, so I'm not going to lose anything here. Um, I might tick off some people, but they'll stop, they'll drop the strip and, and move on to something else. And that's fine, you know, because I think, you know, they're genuine p- political disagreement. But in this case, I felt passionately and I also felt, uh, you know, I just, in utter disagreement with, with certain things that were happening in this country and, and felt like I had to say something in as, you know, limited a way as, as I I am doing, you know, via my comic strip. Nevertheless, I felt like this was a vehicle in which I had to say what I had to say. And so I did. And, uh, but I didn't, you know, strangely enough, um, by the time that I was doing that, um, either nobody was left reading or the people who were left reading, you know, knew exactly where I was coming from. So it didn't upset anybody. Uh, but you know, there are times though, uh, when you put stuff out there and you're just as likely to be hammered from the left as you are by the right, uh, when it comes to certain things. And, and we all try to keep up and be as as we can and i think that we try to move forward as sensitive people artists by in general are very sensitive people and they care and they're empathetic and and i know i'm generalizing you know because maybe some artists aren't empathetic but you know most of those people i know uh and i've been in this field for a long time and i've worked with people in a variety of different environments who are artists and and uh, been in and out of school with artists and most of those people are pretty sensitive and pretty empathetic and if they say something that is going rub somebody the wrong way generally speaking it's coming they're coming from a good place they're coming from their hearts are in the right place and uh you know give them some slack Uh, maybe sometimes we need uh, a little uh education fine that's great but um at the same time i think you have to kind of take it with well you know take it at face value in a sense that most artists are coming out of a place where they want to help the culture they don't want to hurt the culture and uh so um i don't know how i got off on that but anyway to me it's really interesting in that uh, in 2008 i did a comic strip called socks and barney it was about Mm -hmm. bill clinton's cat socks and george w (laughs) dog barney and it was basically the two characters sitting in a bar acting as stand-ins for the you know Uh left and uh, 2008 was such a quaint time nowadays it feels like uh you know uh, uh, i don't know like like an old postcard um yeah yeah, a long time ago but uh one of the things i learned from walt kelly's strip and i think one of the reasons why pogo 
just doesn't have the legs Peanuts has was mm-hmm. that he got into politics. Oh, yeah. And it's not that his politics were wrong or it's not that his pol- political jokes weren't funny. It's mm-hmm. just that they require a context that we don't have anymore. So, yeah. so you can't read them and go, oh, okay, that's a Lyndon Johnson joke. You know right. <laughs> Exactly. You know, so, a lot of kids today don't know who Spiro Agnew is, you know. Right, exactly. Uh, but, so brilliant yeah. as it is, it was it's it's impenetrable. And so Yeah, and that's one of the reasons, you know, uh Will and I were talking about Doonesbury and I love early Doonesbury and there's certain things, certain issues like the Vietnam War or Watergate that were so big. But when you go back to the strip and try to read it now, try to get into those now, it's a little hard to do even if you lived through that time because the context is gone. It it works as a historical document, but the feeling of it's not there. Whereas with Schultz, uh I've read them over and over and over again, doesn't matter when or where. You know, and because it's about character, it's about the inner life, right. not the exterior world. They transcend uh, time. And, yeah. and, you, yeah. and you make the same arguments with metaphor and with and, mm-hmm. and in an abstract way that's more universal. And mm-hmm. I think he did that. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why I I kind of someone said, oh, the new political season was starting. You're going to bring Sox and Barney back. I'm like, no, there's really but mostly because it, the strips I had back then, I would make a joke about. You know, a Republican nominee who is no, you know, who nobody knows anymore. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, and, and nobody knows those issues anymore. They've all changed, you know, and uh, they've all been swept by the wayside. Things that were so crucial then. And that is one of the things, too. It's funny, the older you get, of course, the, the more th- things change, the more they stay the same is the old trope. And it's true because the arguments in a lot of ways rehash, re- resurface in different guise. And you think to yourself sometimes after the end of a political season, man, we've been having these arguments for, for 40 years and we've never gotten any place. Nothing's changed. And, and things have changed, obviously, and some for the good, some not for the good. But it does seem like there is a repetitive quality, you know, particularly to politics, but also uh, there are sp- specific illustrations of those arguments that, f- again, are so rooted to time and place that they, l- they lose meaning and, uh, and drift from memory. And it makes it harder to go back. Which is kind of why the other thing too is um, you might you were asking why you know or maybe you weren't asking but one of the reasons I I'm not really working on jetpack so much anymore is exactly that um, it, it's I kind of see the limited reach limited scope of that kind of satire in a way um, and so the thing I'm working on now I'm hoping is going to be more along the lines of what we're talking about in terms of timelessness something about character and the interactions of people more so than about context and and outer exterior forces in their impact on people I think there's uh, ultimately that's kind of where you got to go you know is uh, is this interaction among people so how do you how was that going to sh- take shape in your new project? Well, like I said, it's about three women and uh, three young women in uh, Hollywood trying to make their way and and it's about different attitudes in in one case one very clear-cut case. It's two characters who really care for each other but as, as friends, but also have very different ideas of what it means to be a woman in the world today. One who is more embracing the uh, more, I don't want to say more proactive, maybe attitudes of uh, feminism today. Another who is maybe a little more stuck in the past. Somebody who has also got different aspirations for her career versus one who's devoted to the idea of art for art's sake. And uh, so, you know, they play off against one another a little bit. And um, and there are characters who have different kinds of attitudes, different problems, uh, you know, those problems somehow reinforce or those inner problems are the source of their worldview. Right, will you be creating this as a comic strip or as a... Right now, I don't know. I got to tell you, it's kind of in the, it's up in the air. <clears throat> I guess I can, I can say it here. I've been in discussion with somebody for a couple of years and oh, I worked very closely with an editor for about a year who I think really believed in me and really cared about what I was doing, but then she retired. So I was kind of left hanging, you know, what, what happens now? And I'm still kind of left hanging. I've been told not to really publicize or do anything with the work I'm working on, which 
one way or the other, a determination will be made by them or by me um, in the next couple of months whether to go. But right now, I've been told while it's sort of in the last stages of review not to do anything with it. So if it doesn't go anywhere, it's going to be on the web one way or the other. That's that's ultimately it. And it'll probably, by the end of the summer, debut. And then, you know, the heck with it. I'll just if, – if I do it on my own, fine. If, if I don't, um, that's fine too. You know, I'm, I'm kind of philosophical about it. I'll wait it out for a while and see what happens. But, um, I, you know, like everybody, I can't wait forever. Right. Yeah. But anyway, so, yeah, I'm excited about it. It's, it's something I'm really passionate about and enjoying doing. And, um, and I'm, I'm hoping that my writing is growing. And that's kind of what I've been focusing on, as well as the artwork. But, yeah, so it's a bit of a change for me. Well, that's great. You, I often hear cartoonists talking about the art more than they talk about the, talk about the writing. So. Well... I come from an art, uh, you know, an art background. It was always about the art for me before. I mean, and, and we're talking about peanuts in this very broad way. And we're talking about how it works as a very large, you know, fully realized work of art, not only visually, but also in terms of conceptually and the way the characters move and all of that together. I always came from this place. And it's funny. I always came from the place of art first. And I guess there's a lot of kids who are comic book people, maybe, you know, I always knew the names of artists before I knew the name of writers. And, and it's funny how like comic books have become so writer oriented in the last well, 30 years or so. But I understand it as one who's really, the writing is really in a lot of ways, the hardest part, especially for somebody who's coming from a visual point of view, you know, I went to art school and, and, uh, I've studied art history and I became a painter and, you know, I was immersed in art. And, uh, and so I came from that point of view as primary and so getting into the writing is is uh and writing character was like oh you mean when i first started doing comics it was like, oh you mean you gotta you gotta think about that it just doesn't happen <laughs> but uh, so it was it was oh okay i gotta write too yeah all right i get it so it's more than just drawing well and you know we've talked about it you know and i think that, that you know in your work it's evident and that's what you're doing thinking about character and the in the relationships of these characters it it has to be there from the beginning and it, and it has to be something that you care about you have to care about your characters and uh, and the thing the problem with plastic baby has there was no characters really to care about and uh, and i didn't even realize that but now you know it's something i think about all the time not that i'm trying to manufacture characters they have to be characters that i care about you know, authentically, they have to come from me, you know, and, uh, and the same is true for you and, and anybody who's working in the field we do. Yeah, I think having a clear goal, a clear identifiable goal, and I don't mean just one that can be recognized, but one that you can connect with, like, that's why Sir Quimp in the Middle Age, his quest is to rescue his love, I thought, that's such a simple concept. It's such an easy to understand motivation. Mm -hmm. um, it says a lot about his character. And mm -hmm. I thought that that's so if the comics, you know, if people are picking up the comic strip for the first time, it's like when you see a cat and a mouse in a comic strip, you immediately understand their relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I felt like by giving this knight a simple quest, a romantic quest, it would mm -hmm. make it way a lot easier for people to connect with them. And I, and so far, that seems to have worked so far. Well, it does. You know, it gets you into the strip right away. I mean, you don't have to read a hundred pages to understand his motivation and why he's doing what he's doing and the relationship of him and maledicta it's it's all there and at the same time you acknowledge the fact that this is something that's been we've it, it's been done before but of course love stories are the greatest story you know and so no matter what form a love story takes uh one way or the other we always want to see you know the outcome of a love story and uh and and so it's it's natural for us to even, you know, you can say it's been done a thousand times before. It's how it's done. It's uh, it's it's not the bare bones of the plot. It's it's the the gist of the story. It's the way in which you make it yours, the way in which you make us care about the journey that these people are on. And um, it's it's in the it's in the telling. What is it? Brad Geiger says on Comic Lab that all ideas are worthless. It's the execution that counts. And uh, and it's true, right? It is the execution and the execution, obviously, here. You know, your readers care because you care and because it transcends the the limitations of the the description of the plot. Do you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. There's a there's a I was thinking about this the other day. Like um, you could say that both Fight Club and The Sixth Sense 
have this mm-hmm. massive hook at the end, a massive, uh, you know, switch at the end, a uh, reveal at the end. Mm-hmm. And only one of those movies bears repeat watching. And mm-hmm. because it's, you can describe Fight Club all day long. I could tell you about everything about that movie and you'll mm-hmm. still want to watch it. And I feel like if, if we do, we're doing our jobs right, if we have twists and turns in our story, but even if the reader knows those things, it's still fun to read. It's still well, fun to watch those re- the, the characters get to that point in the story. Yeah, and and I think you know again you're absolutely right. You know the execution is is what's gonna you know make it last and make us care. But it's also those tweaks here and there that are gonna draw the reader back in. You know every day if it's a, a, a serialized strip, you have to want to come back. And for example, the last strip that you did, the very last one, uh, the last published episode i'm i'm waiting for the next one man i can't wait to because uh this okay you got me hanging and that's what milton kniff did and that's what uh you know hal foster does you care and i you know i this that brings up another one we haven't talked about there's so many things to talk to you about but old adventure strips you know i'm reading your stuff and i'm thinking well this this guy has got to be reading you know he's got to have a collection of prince valiant comic strips he's got to have uh alex raymond's flash Gordon, you know, Roy Crane's wash tubs or something. Are you, are you familiar with that stuff? Is that part of your DNA also? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, and, uh, the Mac Ray, Ray boy era. Of Flash. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that stuff is absolutely part of it. And again, as a Wally Wood fan, I never realized well, I was looking at Wally Wood that I was actually looking at a lot of Hal Foster and Alex Raymond. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everything from his swipe file that I was getting, uh, like secondhand, uh, uh, Al Foster with most of his panels. Um, yeah, uh, that stuff definitely led into it. Um, yeah. I've, I, can't I've, direct, I can't say directly because the stories, the Prince Valiant stories never moved me. Oh, really? The, no. I. Uh, oh, man. See, I, I read that. St- I, I'm, I'm fi- I started when I was 13 and I got those Nostalgia Press uh, collections, which are disparaged now, but I love them, and and I loved them then. Um, they were like a, drink, a breath of fresh air in 1973, you know, and uh, because they hadn't been collected, and it was an introduction. Because I thought it, in the newspapers, I always thought Prince, Prince Valley looked kind of stodgy with the text on the bottom, and I didn't, it didn't pull me in. But when I saw it in the books, oh man! And now I'm reading them. You know, again, here's another tip of the hat to fanographics i am not being paid by them by the way um but you know they're they're collecting prince valiant and i'm reading uh, everyone every year i get another volume for a, a present you know and i love them and i am so oh man i find his storytelling to be just so rich his his characterizations of men and women uh his women are not simple you know 1950s women there 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 are some of those you know classic kind of uh you know roles you know male female roles from the from the era that that hal foster grows up in no no doubt but at the same time alita is really a, a strong and interesting character and and the the dynamics of family versus adventure and all of the stories oh man i get sucked into that stuff i think he's a great storyteller i i just love that stuff oh that's great i i need to give it a second chance it's well, one of yeah, those, it's yeah, one of those things where I've, I've not i mean I, i've poured over the artwork but i've not read the story i feel like you know i've got a copy of lord of the rings here i've never read that either it's just one oh. of those things where i think i got to be a certain age and i that window closed and yeah. i I just need to make that time to to dig into it. Yeah, you you do. You know, it, it's really if I you will not be disappointed. Same thing is true with all the great adventure strips. Uh, you know, uh, I love uh, Terry and the Pirates, and I'm not uh, by Milton Kniff. I didn't read the George Wonder strip, uh, Wonder stuff following, but the the Milton Kniff stuff. Uh, you know, he was a masterful storyteller. Those and, I've read. Those I've read. Those are wonderful. Wonderful. And the other guy I really love is Chester Gould. And, you know, politically, I'm on the complete opposite spectrum right, <laughs> as Chester Gould or or um, uh, uh, Little Orphan Annie. Right. Completely, completely different approach to, to politics. But Little Orphan Annie is, a, a, again, those original strips by Harold Gray are just uh, brilliant. Love the drawing. I love the atmosphere in Little Orphan Annie. And I love the stories. He's a great storyteller. So is Chester Gould. And, and you know, I get into all of that stuff and, I you know, I get caught up in it. And, uh, oh, gosh, you, you know, I'm getting excited just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, it's true. I, I, I go back to these things and I just, you know, I, man, I just love 
I, I, I'm so thankful because I just love this stuff. They cared so much about what they were doing and they brought so much to the plate and it, and it just, it reeks of that, you know, and at the same time, uh, they're great stories. You just get so caught up in them. Well, I think my favorite thing that I ever saw for Alf, Hal Foster was someone asked him, how long does it take you to do a strip? And he said, oh, that's easy. 54 hours. And I'm like, <laughs> And that really is one of the, that's also, that informed this comic strip as well. It, it basically, everything I've done the last six or seven years has been informed by that quote, because the thought being that uh, so people look at Charles Schultz's work and they look at Carl Barks's work and they think, oh, this is so simple. You know, they, they, they under, they don't appreciate the artwork. You know, they never tried to draw Charlie Brown and they didn't realize how hard it is to draw oh, him right. Absolutely. Oh my God. That drawing that head and getting the proportions right, it's impossible. Yeah, if it, if that nose is off by a, like a micron, you're, you've messed up his face. Yep. Uh, oh, and then you're just doing that with ink. You know, no take backs. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so with this, with the, what I realized was that because, let's say the muggles, because readers didn't appreciate or tended not to appreciate the simplicity of, of Schultz and Barks and Alex Toth, Mm-hmm. And oh, Alex Toth, man. Even, even basically the artists who were called artists, artists, like Darwin mm-hmm. Cook and oh, yeah, yeah, uh, Mike Mignola. And again, yeah. um, you're naming all my faves, man. <laughs> and they, but they were like, they were artists, artists because they didn't have all that. What, what readers are, I'm going to say muggles because uh, basically say the non magical folk. They say they think that, um, what they what they call detail in quotes, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is really just ornamentation and texture. Mm-hmm. Huh? So when I was drawing the middle age, I knew that I wanted to include that stuff. Mm-hmm. Alex Toth had said, make it so simple you can't cheat. And I really am cheating. I mean, I'm, I'm, all that chainmail texture I draw on Sir Quimp and some of that foliage I draw every leaf in the background, that mm-hmm. stuff, it's, it's a special effect. It's mm-hmm. not, it's, it's candy coating it. It's making it shiny. It's like, like the equivalent of airbrushing back in the day. You know, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it, it doesn't feel, that part might be a little bit disingenuous but that's really just kind of a firework to get everyone's attention and then hopefully they stay for the rest of it um well i think in in the the environment the web environment now there are a couple of different ways of grabbing attention one of those ways is by doing a meme like comic like brad and i were talking about like a strange planet or or something like that where it can be read in a millisecond while you're scrolling sure. that and it's so simply done but it's also got to be funny like strange planet is and and so but you you can read it in a millisecond in and out it's over with it and it's done the other way to grab attention is to do something that is so beautifully and lavishly illustrated that people can't take their eyes off of it and they're going to look at it for days just to see you know read every detail and and uh you know, you're doing the latter at this point, you know, it's just so beautiful that you can't take your eyes off it. And and that's just, and and it's true, but you know, that's part of, I mean, the same thing in a way that Hal Foster did or Alex Raymond, it was so beautiful. You just loved it. You you wanted to look at it again and again and let your eyes just drink it in. Those are a couple of ways of getting attention to your work in this environment. But at the same time, it feels authentic to you, especially knowing where you came from and what kind of graphic capabilities you have. Um, it's it's necessary you know it's it's more than just candy coating it's it's mood it's the environment it's the context the world these characters inhabit it 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 uh emanates and feels real uh if it wasn't something that you were naturally um attuned to do if that was something you didn't care about you wouldn't be doing it and it wouldn't be there and it wouldn't you know read that way uh it, it's it it feels it's very rich it, it is you know middle age it is like a shiny new car it's beautiful it gleams in the light man but uh it also feels very real and uh that's important also you give up a lot of space to your text you make sure that that's fit in there you tell the story it's all in service of the story and that's what what ultimately it comes down to is it's in service of the story and uh and i think that's what those great you know artists artists we're talking about do mike mignola and and darwin cook uh you know both of those guys and uh, alex toth all of them i think we admire the 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 dis- discipline it takes to edit in their yes. work uh, but at the same time the editing is buoyed by excellence 
moments because what's left is just so beautiful and uh, um, the essence of it is really strong. And, uh, and that's true of what you're doing too, you know, and that's true of Charles Schultz, you know, what's left is uh, he takes everything out, but what's left is meaningful and real. Before we reach the end, cause it's almost, you know, it's been an hour and 44 minutes. Uh, unbelievable. I know. Um, but, uh, before we get to the end, you know, one of the things I, I wanted to note was you've been a booster of web comics since the start, since way back in the late nineties. And, uh, you've been a big part of SPX, big part of, um, uh, getting web comics recognized by the Eisners and by, uh, the Ignatz awards and elsewhere. You've been a, a big vocal advocate for this field. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that? You know, what drives your passion in that regard? Um, well, a lot of it was fortune. Uh, at least when it comes to small press expo, I was a volunteer. I was living in the Washington, D.C. area, and I had volunteered for the show for many years and helped them with their website and helped them add the uh, the web comics category to their awards, um, to the Ignatz Awards. Um, with the Eisner Awards, I was asked to be a judge uh, in 2005, and up in the, the three or four years preceding that, whenever the Eisner nominations came out, be this outcry that web comics have been yet again snubbed. And uh, I was asked to be a judge. And I said, well, how come web comics haven't been uh, included? And the and Jackie Estrada, the um, uh, organizer of the awards, she said, no one's written a proposal. The people who wow. complain, but no one's written the rules. And it, at that point, it became, I'm like, okay, I'll do that. I'll figure out how to do that. Because the rules were the Rubens over by the National Cartoonist Society, which handled the comic strip side of things, and the Eisners on the comic book side of things had very discrete fiefdoms. And uh, the Eisners don't really recognize comic, at the time, didn't recognize comic strips. And the Rubens didn't recognize comic books. Basically, they were two different camps. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of web comics looked like comic strips. And so mm -hmm. the Eisners had a tough time with that. So we basically had a, I had to kind of create this weird mm -hmm. jury rigged description of what a web comic is in order to get it acceptable by the Eisners. Uh, Eisner's also had a very interesting criteria, which was it had to be published work, had to be professionally published work. So mini comics were ineligible for the Eisner's, for instance. It had to be something that went through Diamond. Mm -hmm. And so we had to come up with, I had to come up with some sort of arbitrary criteria that would establish a comic, a web comic as a professional comic, short of seeing the tax forms of the creators. And then at that point, there really would only have been like five eligible creators who were making a huh. living at doing web right. uh, that weren't necessarily pornographic. Um, huh, yeah. So, uh, so things like having a discrete domain name or being part of a hub site at the time. Again, 2005, different environment than today, and a lot. Uh, th those those thresholds to demark professionalism were a bit, uh, again, arbitrary, but easy to draw those lines. And so, once those rules were there, the other judges that year uh, uh, approved it, and we got to add them to the awards, which was amazing so the, but the reason why to do all that was that there was all this creative all this creativity that wasn't being recognized mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's clearly it's right, yeah and right now it still feels like right now having a separate webcomic category in the eisners or in the uh rubens feels a little off it uh -huh. feels like it's acknowledging this other separate thing as opposed to you know uh yeah I, part of the whole but 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 i guess there's also given that web comics i mean you really can't think of web comics as being a separate medium so that comic books graphic novels short stories and web comics all serve different masters in different ways in terms of how you have to construct the story best for that form so under having so having them separate in terms of the final product is a legitimate distinction as long as the webcomic creators are also being considered in the best tunist category best colorist categories as long as they're um the NCS doesn't have to worry about that. The Rubens don't have to worry about that since they don't really acknowledge those creators except for the Ruben itself. Mm -hmm. It's everything else is about them. It's really about celebrating the product of the cartoonists. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. they're in a specific category for the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but And the Harvey's recently changed to be almost completely New York book centric. So mm -hmm. they have a digital comic category, but that might as well be a download or a PDF or something. They're, they're wow. in a weird place right now. The Ringo's are a very new award, uh, and they still have web comics as separate, but 
webcomic creators have been nominated in pretty much every other category. So there's quite a bit that seems to be a, and I helped write the Ringo uh, rules. I wrote them and then stepped away because I, I always thought, you know, the trouble with being an SPAX was that I got to, you know, I was executive director for two years and helping run that show, but I didn't get to set up. So it's like I was doing yeah. all this stuff, but I didn't get to do the thing I want to do, which is cartooning. And so with right. the Ringo Awards, I helped write the rules uh-huh. and then uh-huh. stepped away so I would hopefully be, so I'd be eligible to be nominated. Um, and for, and I'm actually doing work now, finally worthy of being nominated. So like the Eisner Awards, <laughs> I got nominated in the Eisner Awards in the category that I helped create. Yeah. It took about it took about 15 years, but uh, it it happened. Yeah, and and you know, of course, obviously, it's, it's well deserved. But it's really interesting. I, I guess these older models of of validation are still in place and still kind of hard to let go of. I know in my own generation, uh, in particular. Uh, you know, we grew up with this this idea of comic books. Marvel and DC were the legitimate comic books. Charlton was not legitimate, you know, and anything right. that was self-published was was not worthy of our attention because of, you know, what we grew up with, which was a limited viability and uh, limited market. And they position themselves as the only valid games in town. And they convince you of that. You know, it's almost like hypnosis in a way. And you really, ha- it takes a while to step away from that that mindset and begin to think, you know, Hey, web comics are a valid field and form unto themselves. And by now they have a history, you know, there are, uh, established norms. There are, uh, outlets for major web, web comics, major corporations are taking notice of them and, and, uh, benefiting from them, you know, whether it's go comics or other places, it's a, it's a valid form, but these old, you know, mo- these old, old models change slowly and are resistant resistant to change uh as well and uh and so yeah somebody's got to show them the way thank goodness that you were there to do so well i don't know i mean the awards are silly i mean they are yeah yeah there's there's so much great work how can you acknowledge it all right there's there's 150 comics web comics worthy of being nominated in the this year's rubens and they Mm -hmm. you know they nominated three and they three good ones uh, but you know that doesn't mean you know the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, mm-hmm. all the way to the hundred and fiftieth on the list wouldn't also have been perfectly valid nominees. Um, so it's it, it, in some cases it's nice that you know you can shine a little extra light on some other story. So in that regard, it does some good. Uh, in that it breaks some hearts, you know that, it, that that's the that's the yeah. downside. Yeah, it is but, the downside. Yeah, but. That is web comics forging their own way. I'm glad you listen to Comic Lab. I I listen to that every once in a while too, okay. and I like what those guys are doing. Um, uh, but the the uh, idea that the, the old gatekeepers are gone, like Diamond is still there. Mm-hmm. I still think there's something said for the direct market because that is a whole audience of people who are used to paying for content that the web comic yeah. community is not. Yeah. Well, that's one of the problems we face, right, is, is web comics artists, is, is uh, you know, payment for our work, making a living wage, which is something we've talked about before. Um, I think it happens, obviously. You know, people are doing well with Patreon and whatnot, and, and certainly the guys who do Comic Lab, they've been working hard for 20 years, and they've established themselves, and, and they are making good livings doing what they're doing. But you know, novices, people like myself, other people find it, you know, daunting and a difficult task, particularly if you don't have all those skill sets, um, because you do have to be your own business person uh, to to make a living. Yeah, uh, I felt I, that was a chilling acknowledgement in a recent episode with Comic Lab was Dave yeah. Kellett said, I don't know if Bill Watterson could could do that. Yeah. And, and I think what that's saying is that in the current environment, there's or the future environment, there's going to be a lot of great cartoonists whose work would not be seen. And I think, but also the flip side is that in a previous environment, there were a lot of great cartoonists whose work wouldn't be seen. And so now, while we might lose a Bill Watterson in the future, we might gain a dozen other Bill Watersons, you know, yeah, other yeah. folks who actually have those, who actually bring the other skill set to the table. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, give and take. You know, you, you win some things and then at the same time you lose some things. And uh, um, it's true, it, you know, but this is the environment we're in, right? And uh, one way or another, you have to respond to it uh, and to move forward. If you're going to do comic strips and you're drawn to do comic strips, uh, you know, syndicated comic strips, well, the syndicates take one or two a year if they're lucky, 
right? And maybe not even that. And uh, so it's it, that's like a crapshoot. That's it's like winning the lottery. You know, and it's then not how many that. last? Yeah, and then and how many last? And then, and then, then you, look at, but you you just know that Charles Schultz would thrive in today's environment. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. a thirty-something Charles Schultz, the guy who was willing to compromise on the, you know, it's it's same as as a guy who's a, a true artist. Yeah. That he was willing to compromise a bit on the name of the strip and maybe even on the format of the strip. Maybe those yeah. four identical size boxes weren't necessarily his idea, but yeah. the idea that he would he would he would uh, pigeonhole himself into that shape and make yeah. it work. Um, he made it work, and he would adapt to the environment. Which you know, as Will Henry said last week, he knew he was selling to the newspapers, selling a product to the newspapers. You're working for them. They're your boss. They're your market. They're your audience. You're trying to, to, you know, you have to work within those parameters. And we all have parameters one way or the other. It's it's adapting to them. And I guess that's always been the way, right, uh, is that uh, you either adapt to them or you don't. And if you don't, well, you know, you don't you don't fit into I'm talking to myself now. <laughs> you don't fit into what the world wants at the moment. Um it is what it is. It's kind of either you accept it or you make the change, you know. I mean, my wife had a store in Lower East Side in Manhattan, and she started off the store selling home goods. And that wasn't going to fly in an, uh, uh, in Lower Manhattan in apartments which were, you know, inhabited primarily by young people who really weren't decorating, you know. And so she adapted. Uh, otherwise, she would have been out of business in a couple of weeks. I mean, it was one of the big lessons we learned there is that she had to adapt and start selling things that the people living in the area who would frequent her shop would want. And, um, it's same, same is true. You know, whether you're talking about art or comics or web comics in general, you do have to, um, you have to go out and somehow reach your audience, uh, in this environment. Um, there's too much stuff out there for them to necessarily just come and find you. Yeah, there's a there's a, there's a Gandalf, Gandalf line for Lord of the Rings. I know I, I feel like I'm being a bit of a poser by quoting from the movies as I haven't read the books. But uh, <laughs> uh, he's, he's, uh, gosh, who was it? Frodo said like, uh, you know, I wish it hadn't happened in my time. And Gandalf says it's well, it's you know, it's 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 not for them to you know this we didn't pick the time we're in, but it's yeah. up to us to decide what we do with that time. Yeah, and that's. Yeah, that's where we're all at. Well, and I think one of the ways of thinking of it, and, and uh, you know, I try to think of it this way too, is that um, it's like the early 20th century, the beginning of, of mass media in the beginning of the 20th century, the beginning of the newspaper boom, Pulitzer and Hearst and, and the development of comic strip syndicates. It's as wild west as that in a way, although this has been around now. Web comics are nothing new. They've been around for 20 some years, um, but even still, it's early in the game. And uh, or feels somewhat early in the game. And there's still a way because social media has changed so many things so dramatically in the last 10 years. Uh, there's there's still things are still evolving and they're evolving quickly. It's like that period of time when those cartoonists were, you know, determining what the the future of the medium was going to be, how it was going to work, how it was going to adapt, how to fit it into this growing newspaper world that was happening in the 20th century, early 20th century. It's, it is very much in a way like that. And in some ways it's daunting, it's frightening, but it's also exciting and, uh, uh, you know, a challenge. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, Steve, you know, I think I've kept my family waiting now for a few minutes. <laughs> I think they're waiting. To get, my dogs are waiting to get fed. Um, we've been talking for a long time, but it's been great. I, I, you know what? I, I don't even I've lost track of time completely. The only reason I understand there's the time is because the recording clock is up there. And uh, <laughs> this is going to be a pretty big file. Well, you can cut this down. You just could cut out all the stuff I said. Just, well, no, just we're going to cut out all the stuff I said, man, because you know, <laughs> I don't want people to hear me whining like a baby, you know? It's like, oh my God. You know? But I'm an old man. I, I guess in your old age, you can whine every now and again. Oh, poor me. I mean, make, but, you know. make that a Patreon bonus. Download <laughs> special sex. All the, all the stuff you and I whined about. Well, all our complaints. Yeah. They'll all end up on Patreon as bonuses, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bonus, bonus. Hear Jeff whine, you know? <laughs> Be a Patreon member. You can hear Jeff whine about his his role in the comic book world, comics world, his failures as a comic strip artist. This is a great. Then people will probably subscribe to that. Two old men complain about yeah. Twitter. <laughs> Two old men complain about Twitter. I love it. That's great. Excellent. All right, Steve. 
Um, thank you for being on the show, really, and continued success with the Middle Age. It is one of the highlights of my reading day on the web uh, when I get a chance to read it. Uh, I, it's a great, great piece of work, long life to it, and uh, much success. Um, I'm looking forward to that second volume on Patreon. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And um, uh, we'll talk, hopefully, hey, we got, there's, obviously we got plenty to talk about. So we'll talk about, we'll talk again sometime in the future. Uh, I'd like to schedule again, just because I feel like we could just keep talking. Well, thanks so much. And thanks so much for doing this podcast. I love it. You're doing great work. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks a lot. So there you have it. Steve Conley and myself in conversation. Go visit Steve's website, steveconley.com. It's all one word, Steve with a V, C-O-N-L-E-Y.com. Check it out. Uh, his work is astounding. Astounding, right? Astounding space thrills. How convenient that I said the word astounding. Anyway, go check it out because you will be blown away. Uh, one, you will not be disappointed. It's a wonderful, wonderful website. And Steve's work on the Middle Age is uh just terrific and uh, you'll get caught up in it if you don't get caught up in that comic strip well i have to wonder about you uh anyway just check it out it's great stuff and as for me hey i'm jeff grogan and i'm at jeffgrogan.com that's g-e-o-f-f-g-r-o-g-a-n.com and uh there's always stuff up there actually i just put some new stuff up there uh, I'd forgotten that I, you know, until I talked to Steve, that I had comic books that I hadn't put up on that website yet. My graphic novel, uh, nice work, and, and my comic books, Dr. Speck, before. My small press stuff from the late 90s. Uh, so I put that stuff up there. The other day, it's funny, you know, it, it, again, you know, you live long enough and you forget half the stuff you've done. I don't know why I was going through the closet looking for something and I found this pile of work uninked Dr. Speck pages. Turns out like there's over 100 pages that I never inked. And three issues of the comic uh, that I never, that I totally forgot I ever did. So I ended up doing seven issues of Dr. Speck. I forgot totally about the last three. <laughs> three of them. And the 100 pages or so of, of uh, uninked pages that I, I've got. One of these days, I don't know, one of these days. One of these days I'll get around to this. And, uh, but, um, oh well, who knows. Anyway, I've got a lot of projects laying around, and it's a question of which to get to first, and uh, one of these days I'll decide. Uh, but uh, anyway, check out jeffgrogan.com. I think you'll you'll find something to pique your interest there. Toot my own horn, why don't I? Also, I'm on Instagram, uh, grogan.jeff, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. Sounds like the Mickey Mouse show. G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. Hey, wow, it fits right into it. Who knew? Uh, that's about the only social media I do. Uh, I used to do Facebook, but you know, all the stuff that happened with Facebook, it's kind of turned me off. And Twitter, you've heard me rant about Twitter, you know, and you don't need, meh, I'm an old man, meh, meh, old man. Uh, I don't understand it, and leave it over there. That's cool. Uh, anyway, so I do Instagram, because Instagram's a happy place. (laughs) I like happy places. So uh, check me out there, because I, I put up pictures there. Lots of pictures. Not of me, because there's no point in that. But I put up, you know, some of my work and stuff and whatever I'm doing. So hope you'll check that out. Um, anything else I got to tell you? Oh, golly. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm really excited about the next episode. Uh, Terry Liebenson of The Pajama Diaries. If you don't know The Pajama Diaries, it's uh, distributed by King Features, syndicated comic, been around for a long time now, 10 years or 12 years, maybe 15 years. And it is, you know, about parenting, right? It's about parenting in the modern world. And uh, listen, I'm not a parent and and it's from the mother's perspective. I'm not a mother, but you know what? It's a great comic strip, and I got into it, and it's one of my favorites. And uh, so I hope if you haven't read it, uh, search for it, The Pajama Diaries. You can read it on comicskingdom.com or in your newspaper, your local newspaper, because it's in a lot of newspapers. It's a terrific strip, a really frank strip about motherhood and uh, being a modern parent. And uh, she's really, really funny. Terry Liebenson is really funny and really frank and uh, really honest, and I think you'll find it wonderful if you haven't read it. Uh, she's also an author, a children's book author. Uh, I just read uh, her book, Invisible Emmy, which uh, 
was one of her first, I think, novels for, for kids. And it combines, you know, prose with comics, and it's wonderful. And, you know, I'm an older guy, but I related to it totally uh, and found it a terrific and easy read. But, but you know, I just, I had to read, I was like caught up in it. It was a great book. One of those books you want to read all the way through. You just don't stop. And this is supposed to be for tweens, right? It's supposed to be for young, uh, you know, that, that age group, young adult readers. And um, who knew, you know, I would find it as fascinating and, and relatable in a strange way. But as you grow older, somehow those memories seem closer. I don't know. It's a phenomenon. I can still feel my junior high days is very tangible. So uh, maybe that's why I, I understood it. But I think anybody will. So check it out. Um, Invisible Emmy by Terry Liebenson. Uh, I just read that. She's got a new book coming out in May. So by the time that interview with her goes up, um, that new book will be out. Uh, so check out her work. And I'm really excited about this. Uh, I think it's going to be a terrific conversation. So looking forward to it. And I hope you are too. Um, I think that's all, right? I think that's about it. So until next time, I hope that um, you will enjoy the spring. Uh, get out there in the, in the nice weather. I hope that you have some nice weather uh, wherever you are. And get on that pitcher's mound, right? Throw a few balls, and, and I hope you, you uh, strike out a few batters. I hope that you do better on the pitcher's mound than both Charlie Brown and myself. That's all I want to say. In the meantime, hug a warm puppy, right? Scratch your cat's back. And uh, uh, thanks for listening. Farley. His name is Farley. Good Lord, how did I forget that?